Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're joined by returning guest and friend of the podcast, Celia. Hello, Celia. Hello. Nice to have you with us from Canada. And you wanted to talk about Get Carter, which is having a 4K restoration right now, which is what Jose and I have been to see. Um, yes. Why we, And actually, we'd never seen it before, either of us. Really? Um, okay. Yeah, but you were dead into it. You wanted to talk about this. So what is yes. it that you wanted to talk about? Um... Well, I guess I'll just like sort of launch right in, but um, mm. I did I did notice that um, a lot of the tenor of the advertising around the 4K restoration talks about it as a British gangster classic and one of the greatest gangster films of all time, and I really wanted to make the case for it as a film noir. Um, it is, and there, yes. yes, and there are a number of reasons that I want to do that, and a number of <laughs> of things about it that I um, I think are really uh, just just brilliant and i'm i'm always really um kind of struck by every time every time i watch it yeah i don't know if you want me to just launch right in or launch right in yes well actually before you launch right in i should i should repeat what i told mike yesterday because you know we were going into the cinema and we we were talking about how i've never seen it and whatever and i thought oh you know, kind of, I wonder if this is one of those films that, you know, everybody says is such a great classic only because so many of the British films of that period were like, you know, so not good. that just, right. just, just yeah. rises above all the crap, you know, mm-hmm. or whether it's really good. And actually, I was mm-hmm. really su- surprised to find it. I think it's really great as well. Yeah, yes, kind of, it was yeah. a revelation to me. Yeah. So, absolutely. but let's hear from you, Celia. Yes. Well, um, so I, I think... Uh, a lot of my enthusiasm for it um, comes from uh, its sense of place. And I, I know that that's probably not um, that big of a revelation to anybody who's seen it or, or um, anybody, any of the discussion around it probably always talks a lot about the the fact that it's set in Newcastle and that it makes really excellent use of um, uh, Newcastle as a place, not just visually, but also kind of like as a, a state of mind, I guess we'd say. Um, and uh, I think um, the thing that really struck me this time is obviously like at the beginning of the film, um, Jack Carter, who is this uh, enforcer or, or heavy man, he, he's like the the violent part of uh, the organized crime organization, has... Um, gone back up to Newcastle where he's from on the train to to look into the um, causes of his brother's death um, and as he's on the train um, which is sort of like this opening uh, sequence of the film he's going up to Newcastle sitting on the train and you're sort of seeing the change in the landscape as he's going um, he's sitting there on the train he's reading Farewell My Lovely of, of Raymond Chandler yes. which I think is um, sort of uh the biggest clue, I guess, that this isn't isn't just sort of like your run of the mill Scarface or something like that. Um, and when he uh, reaches Newcastle, um, there's a there's. A, I always like to sort of think with noir that um, the terroir is really important. It's another <laughs> character in the in the the film usually, um, and so. Yeah. The thing that I really like with Newcastle is that it's it's not that it's Chandler's Los Angeles, but it's more that it's Hammett's San Francisco, um, and and it, it sort of really tracks out because it's a it's a hill, it's a city of hills, 
and angles and <laughs> sort mm. of roots to Pleasure. nowhere and um the there's the the docks and and um all of that sort of milieu to it but it's been yes. transplanted to england and it's just sort of like a successful um reimagining or, or homage or whatever um to all of these private eye novels and and noirs and things that um everybody really loved in europe and and it's like another mm. another outgrowth of of that um that love and it's it's also mm. very successfully parochial and and it's like it, this is <laughs> this is like this is that love in a british context and i just really yes. i really enjoy that about it <laughs> I wanted to, I, I wanted to to say that that is the limit to the comparison with Hammett, right? Because what really comes across is the red brick, the smallness of the houses, how everything is worn and sad looking, and the pubs, the clothes that people are wearing, the boarding house. It all has like this, you know, painted over too often, yeah, smell <laughs> of cabbage uh, aspect to it, right? And then the red, black brick that you see everywhere, uh, the the cold. Yeah, everyone's always wearing an overcoat or a coat. So that's where you know you transition from one place to you know what you're calling the parochial, which actually is just really the local. But but the local as a state of mind. Yeah, it's kind of it's it's a very consistently used imagery, which is a kind of a disaffection, a kind of um, poverty, yeah, a kind of a, a, yeah, a kind of lack. Uh, uh, you notice, for example, how Carter is always careful to tip, to give money to, yeah, yeah, but it, here it's not just for a service provider, it's also you get the feeling to meet a need, yeah, that it, that money will come in really handy. Yeah. So uh, I love that about it as well. I always got the sense, or regularly got the sense, when he was getting out his wad of notes and handing a few out, that it was it, it was coming across to the locals. Well, I suppose he is a local, but, you know, he's a Londoner. Comes across as the big, rich man from London coming up here with all his money, doling it out, you know, like from their perspective. it's. I always felt it could be quite patronising. Sometimes it felt like it was, you know? Like, what are we, a charity? They didn't have any problem accepting it. None of them turned them down. None of them hesitated. Well, I didn't say they weren't hypocrites. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is that feeling to it as well, um, from their from their side of the exchange. Yeah. Well, he's the rich gangster from London for sure. Mm. Yeah, he's the successful gangster, and both the gangsterism and the success are underlined. He's got money, but everyone's scared of him. But also, what I wanted to emphasize is this aspect of need, yeah, that Newcastle is poor, or that, yeah, the Newcastle he's traveling through, right, is, um, you know, one that's poor, and therefore you have the contrast, yeah, of the houses of, you know, the two, um, I suppose, villains, yeah, the one who's very successful, who runs the Penny Arcade games, and then the character played by John Osborne, yeah, who's, the gang leader who basically is responsible for his brother's death. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, I mean, even 
the, the places are underlined, yeah? So one is like a house in the country with security and a private entrance, right? Um, old, yeah, but wealthy. The other one is kind of this, well, he comes into his house and kicks his daughter's friends out because they're, they're ruining the carpet, right? <laughs> yeah? So, so, you know, there is the film also evokes the importance of things, of money, underlines class, yeah, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, it's really wonderful. And that is also part of what helps create, you know, this milieu, this feeling, this state of mind. Yeah, the kind of the film is so uh, powerfully evokes, I think. I think on the other hand as well, um, though, that uh, the fact that he has the money and he's, he's doling out the bills all the time um, sort of serves to underline the fact that he's... Uh, powerless in the face of of unseen forces or whatever um because it does employ that classic noir device and this is actually the most relevant thing to have farewell my lovely where um he's a patsy for both sides uh, and they're both um trying to use him for their own purposes uh unbeknownst to him until sort of the final act i guess and um Mm. You know, he's like buffeted by these unseen forces of fate, and it doesn't really matter if you have, you know, if you have your pocket of bills and you can go around bribing people and stuff because um, you're still prisoner of fortune in the end. But, but also, his focus is to find out what happened to his brother. Yeah, he comes in with a suspicion that it was foul play. So that is the primary thing on his mind. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, initially he doesn't even know there's a crime. He just suspects it, yeah? It's at the funeral, talking to to his brother's girlfriend and the daughter, yeah, that kind of he begins to suspect that there's something else, and that becomes kind of, you know, the main thing. So this finding about this him his being a patsy and so on, it's almost like he becomes aware as we become aware, yeah? Um yeah. Kind of, I think the film doesn't play with differentials of knowledge, yeah, between he, him and us. I do think, though, like in your in your classic Chandler, you have Marlowe coming in, and um, he doesn't even know what the real the real story is until sort of mm. right at the end, right? Especially, uh, especially in Farewell, My Lovely, he's um, he's being used by everybody um, right the way through until he sort of wises up at the end and. I, I I don't know, Mike, what did you think? Because I didn't feel that as strongly, to be honest. Yeah, like, you know, you you begin to sense that he might be a patsy when they begin to make a patsy of him. I When the guy offers him 5,000 pounds, you know, yeah. to... Yeah, until well, that's, then. That's, that's the first moment he notices and he objects and he says, I'm not doing this for you. You think I'm going to take your word for it. You just want this guy off and you think you can use me. So that's the moment where he becomes very explicitly aware um, that people are out to use him, but that my my argument is that that's also the moment where they're trying to turn him in, where they're trying to use him. I didn't get the feeling that they were using him before then. Right? Yeah. Like I didn't think there was a kind of um, like an overarching plot that any of the, the the higher up figures had to use him. They 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 make use of him increasingly, or they try to in certain ways throughout the film. Um, or as the film develops. But no, I didn't think it was a kind of... I mean, there's certainly no moment where it's like, oh, here's what was happening all along, and here's the big plan, you were a part of it. It's none, There's nothing like that. It's it's a film that develops much more organically and straightforwardly, I think. I, I don't know that my, 
you know, that a, that a Chandler or, or like Farewell My Lovely in particular doesn't develop organically um, because it starts out being an investigation about one thing. He's, he's looking to find out what happened to um, the gangster Moose Malloy's girlfriend who has disappeared. And then um, by the end, there are a lot of other things that have come in and, and the, the story is really about something else. Um, mm. And I think... Um, and and part of that is because uh, of what Marlowe knows and doesn't know and people who know things who aren't telling him things and, and things like that. Um, and I think that that's like quite a quite a classic Chandler mm. device for sure. And and there's always this moment at the end where he's, he's angry um, that he's been lied to all along and or, you know, lies by omission as well, um, mm. you know, where, where he's saying why didn't you tell me what you knew when i came in here so it's certainly the case that that goes on in this and as he learns more he's angry that he didn't wasn't being told this and people were hiding things from him but in terms of him being a part of their plan i think that is absent from this um that's not something i ever got the sense of like i say it like jose said it for me it was just that one moment where uh the the restauranter fella offers him that money um that's the only moment i thought i I got the sense that that was in play or he was in play in their game sort of thing. yeah the rest of the time it's just him it's a detective story he's there uncovering the truth and it takes him a long time because people are lying and hiding things um that's what i mean by kind of straightforward because i was still confused i mean it's a film where there's a lot of like kevin said to gary and gary said go over here and see steve and i was like fucking hell i can't keep up with all these fucking names so there was that but that's just like my confusion of actually saying that when I went and read the plot later, I was like, oh yeah, no, I did see all of those scenes and it did make sense. <laughs> um. <laughs> I meant to ask you, Celia, because, you know, I thought initially one of the reasons why you might have wanted to talk about this film in particular is because it really is so sexist. It is, yeah. <laughs> and I wonder. It's true, yes. It is, it is um, mm. a sexist film. <laughs> Um, I guess. Well, there's not, there's no point in being a woman in this film if you're not at some point taking your clothes off or showing your legs off or something like that. Like, yeah. apart from, apart from the sort of older fat woman who's singing in the pub at one point, I think she's the only person, and even she is kind of, she's sexual with the guys. Oh um, yes, and she gets into a cat fight with another woman. Yeah. So exactly, yeah. she's, she's the only one who's not kind of sexualized in the way that the others are um, by showing off. She's quite sexualized. Yeah. Yeah, but in the way the others are, I mean. Um, it's funny. Yeah, I I don't have a I don't I can't really justify that. I guess it's just something that um you think oh well it come it's part of the territory gangster film film noir film noir obviously um there are no mm. there are no good 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 women in a film noir so um. Well, but, you know, she's no Mildred Pierce, right? Yeah. There's no Mildred Pierce in this film. So, I mean, I don't want to make an issue of it because actually it didn't bother me. I just thought that that might be one of the things that you talked about. It didn't bother me because I just saw it's it's a film of its time. You know, it really is a film made by men and you see it, right? Kind of, you know, women are there to be like fucked or exploited or sold or used you know, uh, or displayed for male consumption. Um, It's not what the film is about, right? So, uh, you know, it takes on a different place. And it's it's very much kind of part of that milieu. It's seedy, you know. uh, I mean, there's basically a rape of a minor, yeah? Yeah. So, so you know, it's very much 
part of what I think is to me the film's greatest success is is creating that ambiance. You Absolutely, know, that, yeah. That is both an ambiance in the film, and that is a, a structure of feeling in the film as a whole that it evokes, but yeah, it conveys very powerful. I wonder if um, the reason it it hasn't really bothered you or I either anyway is because that is part of the milieu i mean if you didn't have that it w- there would seem to be a lack of something a lack of some kind of authenticity <laughs> right because i i think that the film is maybe the film itself is not sexist it's just saying here you are this is the this is mm. this is it this is the time this is the place mm. and this is part of it. Well, yeah. those 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 women all have roles. It's not they're not just the eye candy and the being draped over the, the couch or whatever it is. You know, they are that as well, and they are definitely you know titillating the audience with the way they're dressed and the way they're shot. But they all have I think, roles. And they all I think Brit Eklund has no other function in this film than to take her clothes off. Apparently, in South Africa, her scene was completely cut out for censored, and but um, she was still on the poster, and people were like, "Why is she on the poster? She's not in this film." Mm. But yeah, no, you're right. You're right about she her. She didn't want to do it, um, I think, as well, or it was a bad career decision for her to do it. But I, I think neither some, here nor there. But anyway, I think she, I, I read that she said later that she, you know, had not regretted it in the long run. But I think that's maybe something that you say when the film is kind of reevaluated and gets a critical reappraisal. And it's not that it was um, badly critically received at the time, but you know, over the years it's kind of been rediscovered and held up as this, actually, this is a really great example of British cinema. And mm. I get the feeling that, like, saying, you know, a few years down the line, actually, this was a good role to play is sort of based on that a little bit. Yes, because, you know, I think basically my understanding is she was in financial trouble. They offered her a lot of money because she didn't want the role because it's five minutes long. Yeah. And basically, they offered her a lot of money to take her clothes off. Mm. You know, it's Britt Eklund topless in the film. That's a selling point. Definitely in the period it was. And she's used that way, you know. I mean, so uh, let's draw the veil over that aspect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I forgot about her. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, speaking about censorship, is uh, I think part of the thing is that there had been a, a reduction in censorship in the UK not long before this film came out, right? And, this, and the way that this film was made and what was going into it was kind of a response to that. Of what we can what we can show now, what we can do now. I was reading, um, I read a little bit of Roger Ebert's review from the time, and he was talking about how British movies of this ilk are normally kind of cutesy, or they've got flashy camera tricks and things like that. And actually, they don't have this sense of place, this sense of darkness, this sense of uh, understanding of class and that sort of thing. So it kind of felt like there was something new to that, maybe in cinema, in British cinema at least. It's very harsh. I think this is the other reason that I'm uh, very enthused about it is that um, I think you had mentioned before, kind of like the red brick and the and the richness yeah. of the shadows and stuff. And it, it's a beautifully shot film. It's beautiful just to look yes. at. It's so mm. so gorgeous. Um, the look of it is so. Um, I want to say like it's very art art school because i think it's it's mm. it's um very reminiscent of kind of like old master paintings the ri- the richness and the depth and the grit and stuff in the in the colors and and the shadows and the the lighting and everything is just it's your it's your real caravaggio especially sort of like things like um the, the funeral or the wake or whatever and they're they're in this mm. dark little um row house and um there's um 
a, a lot of this play with um, different depths of field and also like a very shallow depth of field and pulls of focus and um, like canted angles, yes. whether they're like canted um, high or low angles, but also uh, uh, natural <laughs> canted angles with the mm. play of the, the different hills. And um, there's like one of mm. those wonderful shots where somebody is, uh, I think, descending a hill but the the shot is overhead and it kind of is moving up and it, it's it's like mm. um such a beautiful um play with a lot of the conventions of noir as well but um removed to this new context of 1971 newcastle and actually this is something that so i've seen the 4k trailer but i have not seen the 4k version of this film and um watching the trailer I thought oh you know I don't want to be I don't want to stand against progress but <laughs> is this too clean now this is like too where's the grain and like the dirt and the and the you know all the <laughs> things that um really actually added an extra layer for me to the it's like a dirty gritty looking film and so I'd be interested to hear from both of you whether you felt like the... I thought the grain looked really, really clear. You know, you could see all the grains. I, I, I didn't notice anything that I thought was was off about the look. I thought it was really nicely restored. Yeah. It looked fantastic. Yeah. And actually, one of those, one of the things about, you know, that Eastman color, is, uh, you know, that it fades right. So to be able to see those blues and those reds, yeah, the reds. For yeah, sure. they are. They're used very sparingly. Mm-hmm. Right, but they are eye popping when they appear, you know, uh, and I think it complements kind of you know the look of the film really beautiful because you have all the rich browns as well, you know, and the dark. I mean, one of the things that interested me is I was quickly looking through the Wikipedia page and it said that Hodges, you know, had um, you know decided to film kind of everything from a distance, and I thought that's interesting because what I remember most. Is the close-ups, yeah, yeah, and the yeah. editing of close-ups, right? Yeah. And the richness of people's faces, and and the makeup of the period, and also, you know, how you have people who are probably only sixty looking very, very old, yeah, with the jowls mm-hmm. and yeah, the mm-hmm. folds of the skin yeah. and the drinking in the pub, right? And how the film really does succeed in evoking another way of life of evoking 1971, you know, and kind of the economic context of that period yeah. and that whole kind of working class milieu so so vividly. And part of the reason, you know, why it does so is actually through the use of light and color. Yeah, that kind yeah. of, uh, um, yeah, it's brown yeah. <laughs> and gray. And actually, when the sea, when you see the sea at the end, just the color of the sea, you can feel the chill in your bones it looks so cold yeah because right? it's that steel blue yeah. right yeah so I, I think that i like that too the 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 sort of secondary landscape that is everybody's skin they're they're bumpy imperfect skin that's <laughs> like that's very i i'm gonna get in trouble probably for saying this but that's very evocative to me of a certain yeah of Britain, I guess, right? It's like it's not teeth; it's skin. Like everybody's got unique skin, shall we say? And mm. <laughs> due to their 
um, their lifestyle choices. <laughs> yeah, well, they're unpolished. <laughs> yeah. So judgy. <laughs> The lifestyle yes, choices. well, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna not get in trouble. Um, but yeah, um, uh, I one of the things uh, that I didn't realize is that uh, this is part. I thought it was part of a Michael Caine season uh, at uh, the BFI, but it's not. It's part of a Mike Hodges. Season. That is, and I wondered if you so have sick. any views. On I do. My yes, I have so many views on my Hodges. Um, <laughs> so um, many years ago now, about ten years ago now, I had the pleasure of um, being able to see the director's cut of the Terminal Man, which is one of um, Mike Hodges' other films, and it's based on a Michael Crichton novel, I guess, and it's stupid. Like the the novel is really stupid, and it has George Segal stars as this guy who's has had some kind of brain implant to yeah anyways science fiction and kind of and it is it's like the most gorgeous film I think I have ever seen in my life like I was talking to Mike about this the other day but that that there's like this triumvirate of British directors who um came to Hollywood and I think were quite responsible for the look of of um 70s Hollywood films uh or a certain kind of 70s Hollywood films with especially things like these close-ups, wonderful close-ups and really stark compositions and um, these sort of beautifully composed tableaus and stuff. And I think he is certainly one of them. Um, and the other two were uh, Peter Yates and uh, John Boorman. So John Boorman mm. with uh, Point Blank, which is that uh, wonderful Lee Marvin That's film. Great. So um Fantastic. Point, point blank and Los Angeles and, and there's these wonderful um, a kind of just groupings of people in each frame and, and like every every frame of painting, literally. Like it, it's um, such a beautiful film to look at. Um, and then Peter Yates, uh, who obviously did direct uh, Bullet, amongst other things. Um, and I know people are very like it has an iconic car chase but if you go and watch the car chase it's not just like okay by the end yes it is just some cars driving fast but it's it's initially like the setup of it which is the best part in my opinion is all these wonderful mm. little things little close-ups little fragments of um bits of cars mm. things about driving whatever and it's very slow and it's a very slow setup and a slow burn and then like it's it's the only time where not the car chase the pre-car chase is the best is 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 like what it is so my conscious yes my conscious i'm sorry sorry. i'm sorry yeah totally (laughs) totally, um off topic but i think that they all have this very pronounced visual style that's based in um a kind of close-up that i don't think you actually really see in cinema anymore i do think that everything is now on sort of like a a a mid-shot kind of murky level of like Hmm. um sort of boring realism i guess and and shot counter shot whatever like um and and here we're we're trying out all kinds of things where we don't have to cut so pulls in focus um different angles and things like that and i don't know um their specific backgrounds but it just feels to me like 
art school, <laughs> but in a good way, in the in the best sense mm. of that. And the shots that Jose was referring to, when he was talking about Mike Hodges saying, I shot everything from far away, and he said, well, that's weird, because I always saw that it was all the close-ups. You know, they're not, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't know. They are close-ups, shot from a long way away. Yeah. And that intense zoom in and long lens on, on these very tight close-ups of faces is, I think, Maybe what you're referring to there, Celia, mm. is kind of iconic. Close. That's what they look like to me. It's a close-up from a long way away. You're observing Jack Carter from all the way across the room, and then someone maybe passes in front of him, or you know, it's slightly obscured, which emphasises the fact that you are this far, away, you know, far away. And there's a kind of, oh, I don't want to say voyeuristic. I don't think that's quite the right word, but you're kind of you're aware of how you're watching him. You're not there with him exactly, but you you are an observer of him in this situation, wherever it is. I was really aware of that when it was. Uh, when in um, the um, scene where he meets John Osborne's character for the first time um, or goes to see him, you know, breaks into his house, whatever, and he's having that poker game and there are these kind of two conversations happening at the same time and they're overlapping. And it, actually, the, the close-up there is really on John Osborne and it gets gradually tighter and tighter and tighter in as this, um, uh, as this poker hand between him and this, I think Harry, the guy's name was, you know, escalates and escalates and they're raising and raising. And, um, you know, the, the, the intensifying close-up, you get it's tighter and tighter and tighter on his face, and it's and the, the threat in John Osborne and his character, I think is absolutely wonderful, and it intercut with, you know, this this conversation that is obviously important that um, that Jack is having with um, the girl, I forget her name, that's happening on the side, and, and I, know I love, I mean, I thought that was a brilliant scene, actually, I really loved it, I love the way it was mixed, I love the way that basically nothing was happening, but so much was happening, at the same time, I thought it was fun. I, I haven't seen something like that in a long time. I thought it was that was a really terrifically paced scene, even though it ends up with essentially nothing having happened. It's just a poker game, and it ends and he leaves peacefully. Mm. You know, I thought I, or I love that scene. Do you have any views of on Michael Caine in the film? Um, it's a star vehicle, it's a key it film is, yeah. in his filmography. What are your thoughts? So, I think. It's it's quite good because it doesn't actually call on him to to do a lot of acting, as as it were. Um, he's he has to do sort of like um, um, a stone face, like uh, you know, implacable oncoming storm kind of. Um... No, but then I mean yes, yeah. But then there's also that moment where you know he sees what's happened to his niece. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or that moment where he, you know, his thoughts on his brother are confirmed and, you know, he's on the verge of tears and I thought he was wonderful and I don't like him, you know? So, you know, I mean, for me, the, you know, it, it really came across what a wonderful actor he is actually. I, I, and I thought he gives like a a really great performance because as you say, it's impassive, but it's not impassive to everyone. There's an impassivity to the people around yeah. him and a coolness and a control. But actually then to the camera, there's this great revelation of feeling when he's alone. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so I thought that was wonderful. I thought he was wonderful in it. I thought, uh, and actually what struck me is, you know, those scenes in the pub or when he's with other people is the film underlines something that I hadn't quite noticed before is that he's a really big man. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, mm. uh, he's, he's, he towers over everyone else, yeah. right? And then, you know, with that blonde coloring, yeah, I mean, he's like a walking target in a way, right? Yeah. Like the height and the hair color uh, make, him, make him a kind of a target, really. And the other thing that I observe, and, you know, it's just my, feet, my thought, but, you know, I'd like to hear yours, is, you know, one of the things about stars is that sex appeal is often an important component yeah. Yeah, in their stardom. And if Michael Caine has any, I don't get it. Yeah, you know, I don't think he's particularly handsome, though in some angles I suppose he, he, he is, and he's not sexy. And yet, you know, I think he's really great in this. Yeah. yeah? So I don't know. What what are your thoughts? Um, I think, um, so first of all, uh, his very blue eyes, which um, are, are played up quite, uh, quite well in the shooting of this film and in the close-ups and stuff, and... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I can necessarily make the case for his sex appeal based on his um, very blue eyes, but um, I think it's he has this sort of insolence about him in most in most of the the roles of yeah. of this period. I think that's quite um, probably has a certain appeal to it. I don't know why I'm saying probably. I it does have a certain appeal to it, <laughs> um, and and. Uh, yeah, I I don't know that it's yeah it's not necessarily a he's not like Terrence Stamp or something where it's like oh yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, um, yes it's, it's more his presence than his physical perhaps kind of yeah qualities like because what yeah. what appeals to me about his entire presence in the film is his focus mm-hmm. you know and if you were saying Jose it's all about what happened to his brother and uh, nothing else I, 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 he sleeps with a woman here and there. But um, for the most part, you know, with that aside, I think it's about getting information about his brother. That's why he's here. And that focus, I think, you know, that which I think maybe is what you see as that kind of face that doesn't really move. But I think it's he's in every scene he has. He's got a yeah, a really tight focus on who he's speaking to, the kind of information he wants to get out of them. Um and that I think like that and that going going along with the fact that he's it's like nine foot and in control of everything kind of physically, um, I think gives you this gives you this incredible presence that he has in every single he controls every moment that he's on screen, yeah. with those few exceptions of you know, when he's for instance, when he um throws that tantrum when the guy offers him the five grand to kill the other fella, you know. It's like he's not in control at that point and he loses mm-hmm. it. And when he cries because because uh, he's seen what's happened to his niece. He loses it, and ultimately, when he kills, um, I can't remember the character's name, but at the end, Eric, I think. Um, I mean, he, he doesn't even shoot him. He loses control so much that he smashes his, his fucking head in with uh, the end of a shotgun. Yeah. Like that's an incredible loss of control. So apart from that, I think he's <laughs> he's composed and he's focused and in control, and that I think is maybe what is appealing about him, and could and could turn into sexual appeal, you know. It's interesting because we haven't talked about the most iconic scene in the film, which is where he comes out of the house naked. Yeah. And actually, I think that scene is very relevant to this discussion, you know, because, you know, he just exudes a kind of uh, self-confidence that's not braggadocio, that's ordinary, right? So, you know, he doesn't give the sense that, you know, I've got the biggest dick in the neighborhood. Like, yeah, it's just like, 
get out of here, right? And I don't care if you see me naked. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, there's a kind yeah. of a, a, um, a, a low-key uh, self-confidence in himself, yeah? That's, that's without braggadocio, yeah? That's kind of, you know, it's not look at me what a big man I am. It's just get out of here. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, I think I think something that's sort of interesting to me here is that Eric, who's played by Ian Hendry, who I I guess at a certain point was quite a big star. Um, Ian Hendry had imagined, um, in that sort of embarrassing way of of um, uh, actors who are a little bit older or on the wane or whatever, that that when they came to him with this project, that he was going to play Carter, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I think. It's sort of interesting to think about that uh, because it wouldn't really have worked, even though he does make actually some attempt to do a Newcastle accent. Um, I don't know. I mean, it would it would depend on how good he was, because think of how good Bob Hoskins is in something like Mona Lisa or yeah, you know, oh, Long Good Friday. Or the Long Good Friday. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I think he doesn't look. Like he would be good, but a lot would ride on the performance. Yeah, yeah, he's very good as as Eric, though. Mm-hmm. Yes, he is. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not sure, but I think I just I, I always think about that. That that's funny. It's sort of like um, there's that really great anecdote about Ellen Terry, where um, I think maybe her her nephew John Gilgood had brought her some script, and there was like an ingenue part in it, and he was imagining that she would play this grand dam type part that was also in it and 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 she was reading the script imagining that that was the part that they had in mind for her to play in this <laughs> so yeah, there's no thinking. way mgm would have cast you know what's his name this actor i don't even know his name I, ian henry i think you know he's like quite a quite a big star because he was in village of the damned and like in the 50s i think he was like it really so okay. maybe they they would have right like but at this point he'd already sort of well, he was drinking as well, wasn't he? I think at this point, his sloppy book yeah. by being an alcoholic. Yeah, so I think that's kind of. Um, and I think the story is he also kind of resented Michael Caine not just not just because he got this part that he imagined he would have, but because he was kind of a contemporary who was soaring. Because yes. Michael Caine was a star, but he'd done Alfie, he'd done Zoom, he'd done a couple of other things, done it yeah. for style. So I mean, and, and the thing about Michael Caine taking on this role is that is that Jack Carter is, although he's understandable, he's basically a shit, and. <laughs> And that's like not yeah. you know he's not a beautiful hero he's an anti-hero at best you know I think also it's probably a departure for him for for Michael Caine yeah. as well that type of role to be sort of a not that likable of a figure yeah exactly that's what I'm um, saying like yeah. that's that yeah that's so, the important thing about um the yeah. important thing about this role in his career I think mm-hmm. is it's yeah it, you know it's doing this I'm doing something different I'm going to be a fucking shithead for a second. <laughs> Mm. I'm going to I'm going to do some acting. <laughs> yeah. Um so what do you think Celia has been its its lasting influence the films? Or has it been influential at That's all? That's a good question. Um I I am sort of thinking of it as like a a one off, I guess, usually when I when I'm thinking about it, but I guess that the, that possibly it's it's sort of the progenitor of all these um british gangster films and sort of like this subgenre of um the the british gangster and 
Although, like, if you think about it, I think a lot of those, those films, like Croupier or something, that's my Hodges. So um, perhaps it's not. It's not. There are definitely directors who see it as an influence. So if you look yeah. at I mean, Guy Ritchie, I, well, I yeah. haven't heard Guy Ritchie say that, but I, can, I, I find it hard to imagine that he would make films the way he does if Get Carter hadn't been an influence on him. Yeah. Um, but I think, in a way, like, the thing that's sort of sad about it to me, I guess, is that it showed that there's all these possibilities in a place like Newcastle or whatever. You could make this <laughs> this wonderful... Yeah. You could be in, what did you say, a crap house and... and do that and that i think a lot of uh places that have their own kind of wonderfulness and and you could be exploiting those places rather than saying oh well let's let's set it in london again Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely let's do do downton abbey again (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, absolutely because one of the things that you i think I, i don't think we ever said it explicitly but when you when you were bringing up the idea of the film as a film noir, I mean, the thing that immediately occurs to me is that it's about the, the seedy underbelly of society. It's a film that's very comfortable moving, you know, porn films and gangsters and all this, and in a very um, authentic feeling way. And like I say, it does it, it as you say, it does it in Newcastle. Like London isn't the only place in the country that's like that. There was a there was a TV series maybe getting on for twenty years ago called Funland, which was by I think a couple of the other people from uh, League of Gentlemen. Which was a drama, and it was a kind of weird drama set in Blackpool. And again, it was kind of seedy underbelly stuff. And that was much more. That wasn't realistic at all. It was fucking weird and wacky, like League of Gentlemen. But still, it was it, like it had that interest in trying to go to these places, um, kind of thematic places. But it didn't have to fucking just set it in London like everything else. It found it found somewhere in Blackpool to do it, and it found this weird way that only Blackpool knew because Blackpool's all about you know the fun fair and the amusement arcades, and it's like it exploited all of that for this. Yeah fucking creepy weird thing that wasn't like you know if it had been set in london wouldn't have been like that at all and that's i think that the, the, the shame is that we, we don't get those we basically you know we get it yeah. occasionally so that's like to not really answer jose's question about it's it's ongoing yeah, yeah absolutely. it's the impact we wish that it have but um but i think <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a seedy under, underbelly kind of thing either right like you could have um films with a very intense sense of of place and setting that Mm. that are not um focused on that aspect of it it's something that i find peculiarly um well it's very typical of almost all cultures right Uh, you know an overabundance of french films are set in paris an overabundance of spanish films are set in barcelona and madrid so you know know that you know the joke where that where it's like all canadian films are set in new york (laughs) (laughs) yes Uh, which has yeah makes sense um it still feels a bit of a short change to the culture you know because britain is so small and so accessible you can get anywhere you know in in just a few hours you know but also with that like a few hours and it's a totally different place like there's such a um but what I mean is I think, that even if the yeah. film industry is located mm-hmm. in London, there's no yeah. reason not to make films in Birmingham or Durham or, you know, Dover mm-hmm. or wherever, right? Each which has its own culture. A very yeah, a very strong sense of of um, who they are, where they yeah. are. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, anyway, any last thoughts, Mike? Well, one thing I want to say, which I never got around to, is basically how 
ridiculously absorbing I found the film. There's so much of the film that is dialogue-free, slow, shots of just Michael Caine walking, investigating his brother's room, all that kind of stuff. It takes a long time to do that, and it's absorbing every single second of that. You know, I think it's it's beautifully kind of fundamental. <laughs> just 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 putting the camera down and letting him act and go through his investigation or whatever it is that he's doing and seeing. I found it completely engrossing. And I think that's worth saying, that's all. Celia, any last thoughts? I I am struck anew every time by by how um, beautifully made it is as a film and, and that there's sort of a, a craftsmanship to it that I think is... Um, missing maybe or 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 a little bit lost in the current offering of 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 cinema there's there's like a we've lost a lot i think um in in terms of uh how films are shot now um and to see a film like that this really um brings it home i guess so you think like oh it doesn't films never look like this anymore and what a, what a shame <laughs> All right, I thought it was really great. I mean, uh, I went in with the thought that maybe this was just one of those films that only British film fans thought was a really great film, and I, 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 I was corrected. I thought I think it, it is truly a great film, uh, uh, and I'm very glad we saw it. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, we are eavesdropping at the movies, uh, and we are on. Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Uh, on social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much, Celia Nichols. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye.